Picture yourself in 1964 America. The president has been assassinated. Spies from the Soviet Union are actively operating within the United States. And organized crime is at an all-time height of power in the nation's cities. It is at this turbulent time in America's history that the FBI tasked some of its highly trained agents to investigate a very serious matter. What are the words to that Louie Louie song anyway? You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, episode 76, Louie Louie. All right, Race, my getting to know you question is very simple this week, and that is, what are you reading right now? So right now, I um, actually got this book from my local library. Shout out to your library. People forget they exist. Just you can go get any book in the world that you want. I had a hankering for this book where I was like, I really would like to find a book about this thing. And I went to my library and they're like, we don't have it, but we can get it in a week. So libraries are great. And um, I'm reading a book called No Settlement, No Conquest. And it's a book about the Coronado Expedition. And my interest in this was actually kind of pushed over the edge. I've always been fascinated by it, but actually it was pushed over the edge when we talked about the Grand Canyon on the show. Um, I talked wow. very briefly about the Coronado Expedition, and I was just like, man, I'm, I'm very interested in that. I should find a good, like, scholarly book on the subject and kind of get a good, you know, um, analysis or description of the Coronado Expedition from Mexico. They started in Mexico, they ended in Kansas, and they found approximately zero cities of gold and um (laughs) it's fabulous so far i've really loved it um and i'd recommend it to anybody interested in that sort of thing it's super easy to read and i've just been devouring it the last week or so oh that's awesome yeah Um, so coronado was looking for the city of gold that was his thing well he they were all so this is my favorite they were all kind of doing that yeah. And this is my favorite part about this book was from the get go. It kind of blew my mind. Like it's the the basic idea that he that um, the author's name is um, Richard Flint. And the, the basic idea he sets out is people have this super negative view of the conquistadors. And that is correct. Right. Like they <laughs> mostly did bad things and were there for you know, reasons that we don't feel are justifiable today. But the thing he points out, not really as an apologist, but like you should know, they really typically weren't there, especially Coronado is his big thing. He says Coronado wasn't there. And most of these guys weren't there to just like, well, let's go in and kill all these people who don't look like us Mm. and, you know, (laughs) destroy everything that ended up happening, um, obviously to the great detriment of mankind. But what he explains is, these guys, if you think about Europe, the European mindset at the time, and, he, and that's like the whole first section of this book is try and put yourself in that from their in their perspective. And he said, a Spanish dude in 1500 is thinking, oh, if I go and I conquer a city. So if I'm in Spain and I go conquer, you know, some Moorish city or some French city, I don't want to burn it to the ground and destroy it like it never existed. I want to make them my subjects and they pay me taxes. Yeah, okay. And he he has all this evidence, contemporary evidence, where these guys are like, we're going to go and find these people and their big cities where they're making things and producing things and have these advanced cultures, and we're just going to make them part of the Spanish Empire. Oh, I see. We're not out to destroy them. You know, we just want to bring them into the fold, and we will set ourselves up as little mini governors of these cities, or, you know, we will, we will get the... Um, basically this we're expanding our tax base and Mm -hmm. i thought that was just fascinating from the get-go i was like okay this guy's got me hooked that's a really interesting perspective and of course it didn't end up going that way vast majority of the natives that were encountered by these guys ended up dying of disease and later there were like okay we're just we're gonna kill all these people um in a massive yeah because what happens if they're not interested in (laughs) right (laughs) and and these guys when they showed up they found just a more a more basic kind of culture in terms of like production and 
and oh, um, yeah. like a market economy. They, they weren't making jugs and, you know, it wasn't like that. They couldn't really tax what the Apaches had. You know, the Apaches were living oh, on I the see. land. And anyway, super fascinating. If you're interested in it, Richard Flint, No Settlement, No Conquest, A History of the Coronado Entrada. Um, just the title makes me kind of want to fall asleep, but the book is good. <laughs> Oh, that sounds really good. Um, yeah. I'm of the opinion that a good history book is hard to find. Very. But when you find it, it's so good. Yep. I mean, yeah. I think my favorite books are history books, but you have to really do a lot of sifting to get through them, you know? Yeah, and I got lucky. This was just kind of the first one I found. And I'd heard good things reading online. And he makes it very accessible and understandable without, you know, just drowning you in a million footnotes and scholarly gobbledygook so it's great um yeah what about you what are you reading i per my usual am juggling like eight to ten different books right now i do not know how you do that (laughs) have we talked about that habit on the podcast i can't remember i'm not sure but it it i used to do it right and i still do it i think i did this when we were in college oh yeah you did you'd have like multiple books just around the house you're like i'm reading all of them and i don't i can't do that (laughs) it's a weird habit i don't know what it comes from i think it's the fact that i am um easily like bored and Mm. so if i'm like chugging along in one book and i'm not really getting where i want to be i don't want to just waste my time on that book i'd rather like flip over to something else you know right but then not trying to dismiss it i'm like well i'll give it a chance and see so what ends up happening is that <laughs> i have like two front runners right now that i'm almost done with and then the other books are you know in stages of development at various <laughs> points but the two that i'm almost done with um i'm reading the game of thrones series right now and i'm currently on the third book which is called a storm of swords it's amazing it reminds you like why you get interested in reading in the first place it's just gripping from start to finish i can't put it down any any time that i'm not reading it i wish i was reading it it's like that good yeah yeah you've told me that about these i really need to to get on board i was really in disbelief because i was skeptical about it from the beginning when it was so popular and i had watched the show and i thought the show was pretty dumb like i didn't really get into it at all um and i stand by that i think the show is terrible and i think the books are really good (laughs) so i just had to come around and read the original text which i do think is quite quite good wow um and then i'm also reading the wings of the dove by henry james which i have had on my shelf for the past 14 years and i've never (laughs) finished it before (laughs) yeah And I finally was like, I'm just going to read this and get it out of the way. This has been on my list, by the way, because Harold Bloom really loves that book. Right. I think he says it's like the aesthetic triumph of the century or something, you know, some grand hyperbole like he usually does. Um, So he really loves Henry James Wings of the Dove. I, having now almost finished it, don't get the hype personally. (laughs) And would have quit, I think, a long time ago, except that it's good enough that I do want to finish. Like, I'm mm. curious about the plot and I want to see how it resolves. But I don't feel like I need to preach to everybody, like, go read this book because I just don't think it's that great. Yeah. Um, and Edith Wharton agrees with me. She said that she found certain passages total gibberish, even though she was good friends with henry james so interesting yeah i've read i've read daisy miller and washington square oh how are those kind of the same like i feel like i'm not i don't appreciate this like i i'm not seeing Ooh, look what he's it's sort of like watching citizen kane you know in that sense like Ah, i'm sure this blew people's minds who are used to one type of literature but we're so far past that that anyway um but yeah good on you wings of the dove very nice it's described sometimes as like impressionism in literature, which mm. I love the idea of that. I think that's really something to aspire to. I think that would be cool. But in practice, it just kind of comes <laughs> off like modernist gobbledygook. I'm mm. like, I'm sitting here reading two pages and I can't tell you what happens. It's yeah, that's like a problem. Words, you know? Yeah, yeah. So 
that's my two cents there. Well, luckily, you if you get bored with that gobbledygook, you have 11 other novels sitting next to you. That Absolutely. You yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just rubbing my hands together. I can't wait to get to them. <laughs> So Tyler, as the title of this episode tells uh, our listeners, today we're talking about a song called Louie Louie. And um, I have observed that there are songs that everybody recognizes, but that very few people know the name of. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure people listening have had this experience. um, And I have an example. I bet you don't recognize or I would the majority of people probably don't recognize the name of the song Baker Street. Tyler, do you know? what that song is i do but i think only because we have discussed i think you told me about this song because it's famous for not nobody knowing the title of it but everybody knows the tune everybody knows yeah you play it and they're like oh yeah that one yeah so if you're sitting there thinking baker street i don't know that song go listen pull it up on youtube and just listen to the first 20 seconds and you'll be like oh yeah okay i've heard that song a million times um so the song that we're going to talk about today is sort of that way. Um, I think maybe more people know the, the title of it than Baker Street. But I think most people, most adults have heard this song. We recognize it. It's played all over. But I bet you don't know the words. <laughs> I bet you can't sing along. <laughs> um, but this song is, is really fascinating. Um, it's been called by different reviewers. I pulled all of these kind of um titles or accolades from the wikipedia page it's been called a cornerstone of rock a completely unforgettable earworm the essence of rock's primal energy that served as a bridge to the r&b of the past and the rap scene of the future and so it's this kind of important song but nobody really i don't know it's it's one of those that everybody recognizes but good luck with the words um and there's some crazy twists and turns coming in this story that i would not expect um when i texted you about this idea your response was this is a long wikipedia page (laughs) for for a one silly song it and it truly is you were right tyler like this is a unbelievably long wikipedia page because there is just some some real interesting stuff going on here um also to kind of back up my theory about this song i actually called some of my sisters and talk to them and their older kids. So they're kind of teenage kids. And um, all of the adults had heard the songs, song. A couple of them knew the name. And they were like, isn't it called Louie Louie? Um, and I was kind of surprised a lot of the kids hadn't heard it. But some of them had. They're like, oh, yeah, I recognize it at least. Um, and so a song that you recognize, but you probably haven't heard the full story of. And that's what we're going to get to today. Yeah, so... Louie Louie is, like you said, it's an old song. So it was first recorded in 1955 by a man named Richard Berry. The song is rhythm and blues style. Um, And currently today, it is the most recorded rock song of all time. I did not know that before we started this. That seems significant. (laughs) That's a big it, deal. Yeah, I think so. I also think there's a reason for that that we'll get into in a minute. Oh, cool. But so it was written and recorded by this man named Richard Berry. And this song is what he's most famous for. Um, he when he was younger, he grew up in Los Angeles and he also performed as a doo-wop singer in like multiple groups. But regardless, it's a song that is going to stand out on his uh, bibliography. Um, he unfortunately signed away the rights to the song a couple of years after he wrote it, and he didn't see a penny from any of its royalties for many, many years. And that's, I think, why the song is so often recorded, because I think the rights, it was just really Uh, easy to, you know, like, you didn't have to the composer to get a hold of it because the rights had been signed away. That's that's my theory there. Yeah, it was kind of it was up for grabs early on, right, right, <clears throat> and that's kind of tragic to think like, you know, he probably signed it away thinking 
he would get a quick buck at the time and, you know, didn't make much of a difference and he didn't expect it to take off. And then it really took off and he could have had all that money and he didn't get it. Yeah. And Um, I think, I think that's a fairly common story, especially like with black artists, they would sell their catalogs and then they, you know, Elvis would take a bunch of those songs and do them and make them huge hits. And the people, you know, got 500 bucks for yeah. Like, yeah, like I know that song Hound Dog was recorded years before by like a black woman who wrote it or performed it and oh wow Elvis bought it and made it super famous and she got money for it. But like you said, I mean they they just you wouldn't anticipate it to make millions <laughs> right. and then it's like, hey, but what about me? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of tragic there. Um, a cool story, though, is that decades after he wrote it, Richard Berry was actually at that point living on welfare at his mother's house. And he got approached by a company, California Cooler, that makes sangria drinks. And they wanted to use the song in one of their commercials. And he got involved with lawyers because he had to get contracts written up and everything. And the lawyer at the time mentioned that he could take steps to gain the rights back to his song. Hmm. Um, And so he ended up talking to some publishers and he ended up settling with the publishers out of court instead of, I think, taking it further to court. And he got millions of dollars result. So even though he missed out on a lot of money for a lot of time, he at least did recuperate some in the end, which I think is a nice little story. Yeah. Semi happy ending. That's good. Semi happy ending. Yeah. So the tune of Louie Louie is actually itself based on another song. It's based on an original Cuban song from the 20th century called El Loco, El Loco Cha-Cha. Um, and as such, it's an example of Afro-Cuban influence on American pop music, which was pretty visible in the time period that we're talking about here, 1950s. Hmm. The lyrics of Louie Louie tell the story of a Jamaican sailor returning home to the island of Jamaica to see his lover. And they're pretty simplistic lyrics. It's, there's not much to it. And it's written in something like a pidgin English or a Creole English with imperfect grammar. I think trying to probably imitate the style of Jamaican English. And the song is very short. It's only about two to three minutes long, usually around two minutes. The style of the song is kind of doo-woppy. And this is especially apparent because there are only like four chords <laughs> mm-hmm. and they just keep repeating like and that you just like feel those chords kind of screaming out at you. I think of like heart and soul on the piano, you know, it's like <laughs> okay, like where <laughs> what's the next thing, you know? Bam bam yeah (laughs) um but you know that was 1950s pop music honestly so when it came out it was really popular it did well on the radio and it became popular for r&b groups to at the time to like co-op the song and perform it themselves they would rearrange it they would perform it at like battle of the bands and add their own spin um so what does louie louie sound like if you are like me and couldn't recognize the song by its title um we will listen to a clip of it in a minute but um what i thought of when i first started researching this is i remember seeing a far side cartoon when i was younger uh did you ever see did you ever read the far side oh yeah i loved the far side oh it's great i don't know if you remember this cartoon uh, Gary Larson references it like several times in his oh, cartoons. Really? <laughs> yeah. And I always, I would notice that and I was like, what is Louie Louie? But you know, when I was a kid, you couldn't just like look that up online. So sure, yeah. I just was like, I don't know what that is, you know? And there's one cartoon in particular that has two elephants and one elephant is sitting down at the piano and the other one is standing next to him, teaching him how to play the piano. And the standing elephant says to the sitting elephant, smash your left hand about right here three times, then twice up here in this area, then three times right about here. And that's Louie Louie. (laughs) Which um, is very insulting to the nature of the music. But also Gary Larson here is making a statement about um, the dexterity with which (laughs) he would play this tune because... It does kind of just sound like an elephant with no fingers 
is smashing around on the piano. Well, and I also love that he picked an elephant, which is, for my money, with a huge like tree trunk foot, is got to be the least, uh, least piano playing. Yes, in uh, all of all, all the animals, which <laughs> one could play the worst? I think it would be the elephant, right? <laughs> it, it, it can't help but hit like nine notes at a time. But he's like, it doesn't matter. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. So Richard Berry puts that song out in 1955. Like Tyler said, it's kind of up for grabs um, because lots of artists are taking it and sort of remaking it. Um, There are plenty of other versions that come out, um, but the version we're going to talk about today and by far the most famous version is a 1963 recording by a band called the Kingsmen. And this is definitely the version that you've heard. I would, I would bet and it's substantially similar to the Richard Berry version. Um, and we'll get into kind of what makes it unique. But from the, from the get-go, from the very first note of this song, um, it's got sort of its own thing going on. And we'll take a listen right now, and then we'll talk about what makes this 1963 recording uh, so unique. music you just heard was recorded on april 6 1963 at northwestern studio in portland uh the band the kingsmen rented the studio for an hour and depending on which band member you ask they either paid 36 or 50 dollars um for the for the hour to play part of the reason they were in the studio that day was they wanted they were like kind of trying to audition to be a cruise ship band to go be the band that plays on a cruise ship and they actually did not get that gig, um, but they were, you know, trying to make their make some music, get their name out there. This is what we're capable of. This is what we can do. Um, and so, not surprisingly, they played a song that was kind of just out there that they could grab a hold, put some tweaks on, and and just uh, record really quickly. The conditions in the studio are interesting, and they they play a big part in what makes this song so unique. So the studio, I don't know if all the time or the day that they recorded it, by all accounts, was a very small and kind of um, sort of janky studio. But the day they recorded, they had a single microphone. Now, I am not a music architect of any kind. I don't have any idea about that. But I know that you typically use more than one microphone when you're (laughs) making an album. (laughs) Like every, you know, every instrument's mic'd up and all of the people and uh, but that was not the case this day. Not only did they only have one mic, it was a boom style mic. So not even the kind that like you hold in front of you or is on a stand in front of you. It was the kind that hangs. And oh. so um, that was what they had to work with. Not only that, the lead singer of the Kingsman, uh, a guy named Jack Ellis, um, the sound engineer had hung this hanging microphone, a boom mic, um, several feet too high for, for Jack. <laughs> and the result is um, that Jack had to basically not sing forward into a mic, but like look straight up at the <laughs> ceiling and sing. So that accounts for some of like the strained nature of his voice. It was also very far from him. So he had to, he felt like he had to shout to get his voice to pick up. And so huh. all of that kind of builds the sound that we get here. Um, the other thing is that the, sound engineer was like you know what we should do to get a more like live feeling of this recording is how about you lead singer just stand right in the middle of the band so you're right next to the guitar player and right next to the drummer you're all just kind of in a cluster and that'll accomplish something and so they did that so he had to yell extra loud to kind of you know because he he the the drums were just as close to the microphone as he was which is not again typically kind wow. of how ideal sound mixing would take place <laughs> um so you've got a very sort of strange setup in a kind of janky studio with not ideal um acoustics and then a badly placed mic but all of that 
kind of goes into the alchemy of giving it this sort of crunchy and um, we would call it like a grungy sound yeah. that um, really is unique. And I think even those first, that the first moment those that guitar starts, good luck recreating that sound. It's very unique and very um, part of what makes it so appealing and so catchy, I think. Um, the song, if you listen to it, is, is quirky in that there's a bunch of stuff going on that if you're musically inclined or you kind of have your ear tuned to how a band should be operating you're gonna say this doesn't sound quite right i don't consider myself super musically um sophisticated but if i when i went back and listened to this kind of paying attention i was like oh okay i can see what what they mean by that so for instance if you listen to the the drums in the first 30 seconds for instance and kind of get on the rhythm of how the drums go so you know you get bass bass cymbal or whatever that does not hold. So if you're kind of <laughs> tapping along with your fingers and like, you know, you hit your coffee mug every time the symbol comes on, pretty soon it's going to be off. The symbol just shows up where it wants and like <laughs> the drums kind of just do their own thing. And um, all of this, or at least um, some of it is explained by the fact that um, this lead singer, Jack, explained to his children in, in, in interviews, he said that day we were actually just going to record that as a um, an instrumental. We weren't going to sing it. It was just going to be, this is what our band sounds like. This is, you know, how, you know, a, as one would for kind of an audition album, I guess, or recording. But then they were like, no, let's sing it. So they sort of threw it together and, and went for it. Um, this was done in um, one continuous take. And then they went back and did one partial take after that to kind of patch something in. So basically in one shot, they show up, bang it out with this weird microphone. Um, there's even some things that survive in the recording that we can listen to um, that show you just how sort of thrown together this recording is. So um, I'll play right now a moment where you can hear the lead singer start singing too early, stop. You can hear the drummer go, oh, crap, the lead singer came in too early. And so he does kind of a flourish on the drums. <laughs> and then a few beats later, once it's time for the lead singer to actually come in, then he comes in. So we'll listen to that. Um, listen to that now. So you can hear that mistake, which um, if you're paying attention is pretty, you know, like I said, a, a sound engineer would be like, what are these guys doing here today? <laughs> um, but this recording, this kind of thing that was captured on April 6th um, became so iconic that covers people who, you know, sing this a new version of this song and people who perform it live often include that error to this day. Oh, wow. They, they sing that little beat and then too early and then pause and then sing it at the actual um, at the actual cue, which is kind of funny. So that's the song. Um, it's thrown together, but audiences loved it. So it was first released in May of 63. And it initially did so poorly that the band was like, all right, we're calling it quits. We should mm -hmm. probably break up. But then Boston's biggest DJ, a guy named Arnie Ginsberg, got the record from like a promoter. And he was amused. He was like, this is pretty bad. And I think people will <laughs> think it's funny how basic the musical structure is because it is just those, you know, basic chords. Bam, 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 bam. That's it. If, if you're learning guitar, learn Louie Louie first because it's, yeah. it's dead simple. So it's super simple. There's all these errors in the recording. It's pretty zany. And so he played it on his program as the worst record of the week. Um, this was like an insult, obviously, and kind of a novelty, like listen to this bad record that somebody from the Pacific Northwest put out. Uh, but the listener response was like overwhelmingly positive. People were like, actually, we love that. Please play it again. By October, so it comes out in May. By October, it was um, in the bubbling under range. And um, Tyler, are you familiar with this term from your work kind of related to this bubbling under? Yes, uh, it's please explain that, it to us. So I don't know the like if there's a standard definition, but bubbling under is referring to like 
tracks that are doing really well, but they're not top of the charts yet. Yeah. So they're ones that labels might want to watch out for in case they want to, you know, acquire them for distribution or something like that. Um, or if like, you know, they're trying to sign an artist who's doing well, they might have looked at the Kingsman and been like, hey, we should sign them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I thought that was so fascinating. So like it's this sort of unofficial spot where these songs, they're not top ten. Everybody would know if it was top ten, but mm -hmm. they're consistently kind of okay songs which means there's some, clearly this artist can do something correctly and so maybe it's worth some attention so that's interesting so by october that's where this song is it's like you know got some strong listenership um by december it was in the billboard top 10 and it eventually reached number two on the charts and stayed there for six weeks and um so it you know it pulls through despite all of its it's weird that is amazing like for it to land number two and stay there for six weeks that's no joke so is six weeks a good run oh that's a great run yeah really? like, okay yeah like only like harry styles would be able to do something like he would go to number one but still like that's no joke that's a-listers only oh wow okay i'm man, it's good to have you here a-listers are like uh something that goes viral that sure. you know takes off um but yeah to, so to be even though it's not number one but to be number two for that long means this was a big deal that's cool oh it's definitely know. a big deal yeah yeah i would i would not have get i wouldn't i didn't have a good frame of reference for six weeks but okay that's great to know actually um, I mean, that's, i'm gonna look at that at work tomorrow how many songs i'm gonna look at the charts and see how long has the current number one been there Oh, and I a, bet it's I bet it's under six weeks. Six weeks is, I think, a good amount. Wow, super cool. I know I did read that um I think it was um stayed there for so it was obviously there for six weeks and um but I think it was only thrown down or um taken off the chart after a Beatles hit came. Oh, interesting. Yeah, something like that. Um, because you know the Beatles. Um, I, I think it was "I Want to Hold Your Hand" was their first kind of big one in the states. Um, yeah, it was in October of '63 that it was released or recorded, and so it came in right after that and kind of was the only thing that could dethrone Louis Louis or something like that. Oh, so yeah. super cool. That's I'm I'm really glad we've got a somebody who knows about <laughs> music charts because that gives so, us great right. context. Hot 100 right now. Mm -hmm. Number one is First Class by Jack Harlow. Okay. Which um, he, I would say, is like a new A lister, probably, or sure. maybe not A list, but the second tier. Um, and it's like news that this has lasted for three. He's, this is his third week now on the Hot 100. Um, but the interesting thing about Louie Louie is it's like, it was supposed to be bad. Like you don't <laughs> right. just get a bad song lasting six weeks on the chart. Like that. Wow. I think that's, what's the big uh, accomplishment there. Wow. Yeah. Well, and, and the, with no, like this wasn't a follow-up hit or they didn't have a, anything a else. Name. Right. Right. Yeah. Like in 1963 for Elvis to get a song to number two was like, you know, he just has to get out of bed. He and just has to release something. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that was not the case for the Kingsmen. They were, you know, in complete obscurity. Well, I think maybe part of the, um, we can explain a little bit of the allure perhaps that kept it, you know, going viral for, to use a, a modern term. Um, there were rumors about the lyrics and um, if gossip and rumor spread, especially if it's salacious and especially in 1960s America, like you can just picture all of the like 60s moms, you know, like, can you believe this? Those and so, kids yeah, are listening to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so the rumor about the lyric lyrics is and it, as you've heard from the snippet we played and probably your own <laughs> life, everybody thinks they know the words to this. They go. Louie, Louie, and then everybody just goes bah, 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 we gotta go <laughs> and the rumor that starts circulating is the lyrics are like that because they're super super filthy they're very obscene and the band did it kind of out of the corner of their mouth literally so that you know the man wouldn't catch on 
Um, there's stories about like crumpled pieces of paper being found in high schools that are like, these are the real words that like, you know, if, if, you got to see this paper that's going to show you what they're really singing oh, about. Huh. Um, and so, like I said, you can see the moms, you know, out picking the, up the newspaper talking about like, have you heard about this? And so um, this even extended the governor of Indiana, Matthew Welsh at the time banned the song from Indiana radio. <laughs> I do not know how that works. I don't know if he was just like the state of Indiana is going to boycott this and just kind of set it and radio stations went along or if nobody really went along and he just said, would that we could boycott it or if he passed some sort of got some sort of legislation signed that was like it's obscene to play the song anyway he one of the highlights of matthew welsh's wikipedia page is he tried to ban louis louis in 1963 <laughs> and he did um, this like no evidence by the way he just it was talked about that right it was and rumored people... to be like inappropriate exactly and i mean if, <laughs> if you're listening to like you know Billy Holiday in the fifth in the you know and then you switch over to this it's like we can't understand a thing these long haired freakoids yeah, are singing yeah. about it's probably filthy you know and <laughs> so um, but of course all of this only feeds the fire it's a case of the Streisand effect that we've talked about on the podcast right like we you you can't play that song on the radio well that's the first thing all these now teenagers are probably to gonna yeah. hear right. So this leads to uh, 1963. Um, somebody sat down at their typewriter. Today we would call this person a Karen. Um, <laughs> and uh, sorry, this is in February of 1964. So after the song has kind of begun to chart and do, you know, unbelievably well. Somebody sits down at their typewriter and clackety clack writes to Robert F. Kennedy, Attorney General of the United States. <laughs> and uh, I'll read a portion of this letter to you this letter i found on the uh, fbi vault records um so the fbi has made public a lot of records about things of interest and kind of um you know papers and and investigations that aren't um sensitive anymore and just curiosities like this and so if you go you can read this letter this is one of several documents in this file but this is what the fbi received dear mr kennedy who do you turn to when your teenage daughter buys and brings home pornographic or obscene materials being sold along with objects directly aimed at the teenage market in every city, village, and record shop in this nation. <laughs> My this daughter brought... Unbelievable. Yeah. But, so <laughs> the, the, the attitude is unbelievable, but listen to the confidence. Would that we all could have the confidence of whoever this person was. <laughs> so I'll, I'll continue. My daughter brought home a record of Louie Louie and I, after reading that the record had been banned from being played on the air because it was obscene, proceeded to try to decipher the jumble of words. The lyrics are so filthy that I cannot enclose them in this letter. <laughs> <laughs> so not I fear that they're filthy or I've heard or. But I have mm -hmm. determined. <laughs> but they are so bad. I can't type them in this letter to you. And you have to, somebody get the government involved. <laughs> so um, the FBI is getting information. And this is um, a thing because there were and are laws governing um, obscenity. And as we learned about in Wickard v. Filburn, if your obscene material is trafficked inter, in an interstate manner, it mm. becomes the purview of the federal government, which in this case the investigating body would be the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So it's like, this is being played on radio stations across the country. Please, Mr. Kennedy, do something. <laughs> so from February, when they received that letter, to May of 1964, um, the FBI investigated the song. They, and this is how the FBI summarizes their involvement. They said, 1963, a rock group named the Kingsmen recorded the song Louie Louie. The popularity of the song and difficulty in discerning the lyrics led some people to suspect the song was obscene. Um, I would add that it did not cause some people to suspect the song was obscene. It caused this dude at his typewriter to declare with certainty that the song was obscene. <laughs> 
Um, so that's what the FBI says, um, kind of their involvement. I saw other figures, including on Wikipedia, that this investigation actually went on for like years. But oh. that seems to be not borne out, at least not by what the FBI says. They they received this letter in early 63. And then by like August, there's a memo at the end of the file that's like, there's we, we've listened. We've asked the record company, duh, for the lyrics. If it is obscene, nobody here can agree to what it says. Like there's, there were multiple like supposed versions of the obscene lyrics and they're like, none of these match. And when you give it to an FBI, you know, some FBI agent in his skinny tie and horn rim glasses sits down and puts headphones on and he's like, I don't know. I don't know what it says. And the conclusion they basically came to was how can we prosecute something that nobody can understand? (laughs) like even if the record company said oh yeah this is this is all of the terrible things this record says if nobody knows that that's what they're saying then it's like yeah there's nothing to this and so according to the fbi they closed the file they're like there will be no further investigation into this it's just a song get over it um however um of course the real lyrics are entirely innocent it's just a guy talking about gotta get home to my baby kind of thing um but ironically there is unbroadcastable um, profanity <laughs> in the song. It is not in the sung lyrics, but in the background of the song, in a clip that I'm going to play for you now, the drummer, by his own admission years later, was like, oh yeah, we were jamming and I dropped my drumstick as a drummer <laughs> might do. And he said, and you know, I, I yelled my, my curse word of choice really loudly and uh, that's the take we used. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I'm going to play a clip now. Um, you know, we are a pretty fr- family friendly podcast, but I feel confident playing this because it's pretty hard to tell what he's saying. I think with a little imagination, you can probably get there. Um, I also I have to say I've listened to this song at least now, and yeah. I did not notice this. <laughs> No, yeah, you you would never notice it unless you're really listening, but you can hear an exasperated drummer. So here, take a listen. Okay, we're going to listen to that once again, but this time it's slowed down. Take a listen. So if you're like me and Tyler, that just that makes me laugh so hard to hear that because <laughs> the FBI was sitting with their huge tapes going over like, is he talking about some sort of dirty sexual Congress act, you know, and what they're missing like, is, this... is it communism? Yeah, or is it... <laughs> obviously they were going to be worried about communism as well. Uh, but they're missing this guy very clearly yelling Drop something, which head. turns out to be a word that they wouldn't have been a fan of. Um, so, so, so that's, that's Louie Louie. That's the sort of left turn that this Wikipedia page takes where you're like, wait, J. Edgar Hoover, (laughs) why is the FBI involved in this? Um, but yeah, that's the 1963 version that you've heard on your, on the radio and at the grocery store all your life has those errors, has that F word in it. And, um, you know, that one recording really has you know has quite a a legacy with it it's it's survived the test of time um to this day i mean you're gonna hear it at the at the grocery store on the radio in the next couple weeks i'm sure of it um and that's the version that the kingsman made famous um but there were plenty of other versions which we will uh we'll get to So not only has the 1963 recording of Louis Louis stood the test of time, it has also spawned a great deal of um, covers, spinoffs, responses, all sorts of stuff. And um, I think you're totally right, Tyler. That's a, a good kind of enlightening point that this probably comes from the original artist giving up control early on. Mm. Um, but you can go right now and find there are many, many foreign language versions of this song. Um, which makes sense because the lyrics can be pretty much whatever you want them to be. Clearly nobody could understand what they were in English. 
So if you want to make a Spanish version or an Italian or Belgian, French, Russian, Serbian, Finnish, Greek, all of those exist version, you could just, you know, say whatever you want. And so they did that. <laughs> um, all of those versions exist. Go, you know, listen to the Serbian one on uh, on YouTube. It's super, super interesting. Um, but it's this song has a life of its own in a way that I don't think a lot of other songs do. Um, first of all, if you look on the Wikipedia page, there are so many things that we're not even getting into. Um, it's been sampled a bunch of times, which isn't that surprising. It was um, declared the Washington State song. Um, April 12th was declared Louie Louie Day. <laughs> um, they tried to make a Louie Louie County in Washington State. Uh, there oh, is an international wow. Louis Louis Day on April 11th, which is Richard Berry's birthday. And also, also April was the month when a lot of kind of important things was when it was recorded and all sorts of several important versions were recorded in April. There's something called Louis Fest. There's a Louis Louis Parade. There's a sculpture titled Louis Louis, which Tyler, if you thought impressionism in a novel was interesting, how about proto rock in a sculpture? Good luck with that. (laughs) Um, There's also a Louis Louis hotel room uh, at a hotel in Portland, which that's the theme of the room. Sure. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. the Louis Awards. There's all sorts of stuff. So this thing has a life of its own. Um, Two things that I'll point out um, specifically are um, in the early 1980s, two radio stations, one in Berkeley and one in Los Altos Hills um, in Southern California, engaged in a Louis Louis marathon battle with each station increasing the number of versions that they played back to back the radio station KFJC's maximum Louis Louis marathon topped the competition with 823 versions of the song played over 63 hours. I don't, know of many songs that have 823 versions out there other than like maybe like a christmas carol like silent night surely you could find 800 you know yeah or like certain um classical pieces sure but like there there are not 800 versions or you know like recorded released versions of any rolling stone song no yeah and um and this was in 1980 as well like before you know people were doing funky things on the internet with music and so that's just astonishing super hilarious um and that weekend I, by the way actually it's confirmed that was the weekend that most americans took a hammer to their car <laughs> than any any other weekend all of these dealerships are like we got all these smashed radios <laughs> what's going on <laughs> um the uh, the final thing I'll mention that I think is really interesting is there are lots of artists who will say um, and have gone on record and said, oh, yeah, our song or our sound um, is a ripoff of Louie Louie or maybe less of a ripoff, but more like that song really mm. was our starting point. So there are specific songs that that's the case for and entire groups. Um, I think the Clash said this is what we're all about. We are we are exist because Louie Louie just electrified our oh, brains huh. and we based our sound on that. Um, and several other groups that you can read on the page where it's like all of these kind of movements are traced back to Louie Louie from everything from rap to grunge rock to, you know, all sorts of stuff. Uh, garage rock as kind of a, a genre was supposedly born with this song. Uh, But Hmm. two songs that I'm almost certain that you've heard. And then if you think about it for a second, you're like, Oh yeah. Okay. So, you know, you have Louie Louie's opening riff of bum, 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 bum. Well, uh, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana in interviews said that their big hit smells like teen spirit was a reworking of Louie Louie. And so if you think about the opening riff of smells like teen spirit, you know you can get there and um he he came up with a riff and he played it for the band and they were like well that's just louis louis dude (laughs) and he's like no i I, it's not we can and so they played with it i guess he made the band like jam and tweak it for hours and then finally he got it where he wanted it and they were like it still kind of sounds like louis louis (laughs) Uh, the other song that is um, commonly attributed to it is More Than a Feeling, 
Um, more than a feeling. Oh, I love Bam, 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 bam. Yes. <laughs> you know, you can, you can hear it. Um, and if you go on YouTube, you can actually find, I think, more than a feeling and smells like teen spirit mashed together. And then a bunch of people in the comments are like, well, you know, Louie Louie's actually the original. It's like um, the, the, yeah, yeah huh? the common thread. And um, maybe it's not an accident that Nirvana ran with this sound um, because they're both from the area, from the Pacific Northwest. And the song really is, and you can, when you hear it and you think 1963, to me, it sounds more contemporary than that in some ways. Oh, like, yeah, definitely. Like it, this sounds like, punk rock or it sounds like grunge rock it's got a way more uh, modern feel and so it's kind of cool that that nirvana connection exists because this is seen as somebody called it like the ur text of grunge rock and like the pacific northwest scene specifically yeah and um this was kind of a rite of passage in that area your seattle bands and your portland bands everybody's gonna play louis louis because it's a hometown favorite from the area and um so not surprising that that Nirvana connection exists, but Louie Louie is going to follow you everywhere. It's in all the songs, you know, and it <laughs> influenced everything we listen to today. Um, all these songs that we listen to. But uh, I mean, quite, quite a journey that this little song that was thrown together at the last minute has gone on. It's um, it's been described as an earworm, which mm. I think um I don't know if there's like an official designation of that, but you know what they mean, right? Where it's like something that gets stuck in your head. And those are so difficult to pull off, I think, in music, mm. because the more that you give it that sticky quality and you want it to get stuck in someone's head, you run the risk of it being obnoxious. Right. And I think this song really toes the line of, yeah, I mean, it's going to be obnoxious if you put it on loop, but the fact that it's kind of short and that it has, like, you know, somewhat of an int interesting quality, it's also, like, it's not bad to listen to, you know? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think I, I really like it, and I I actually apologize to all of our listeners, because if you're listening to this on your commute the rest of the day at the office, you're going to be sitting there going, bam, 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 bam. Thanks so much for listening. As far as footnotes go, I was curious to learn which songs spent the most time on the charts at number two without ever reaching number one in the way that Louie Louie did. Turns out the answer is that two songs are tied for this distinction, both having sat on the second place of the Billboard charts for 10 weeks. The first song is Missy Elliott's Work It in 2002 and 2003. The second song is Foreigner, Waiting for a Girl Like You in 1981 and 1982. Uh, Waiting for a Girl Like You was kept out of the number one slot by the songs No Can Do by Hollow Notes and Let's Get Physical by Olivia Newton-John. Thanks so much for listening. We really love making these episodes and we'll talk at you next time. <laughs>